Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Betty Lynn Fisher. I'm the consumer columnist and medical reporter with the Akron Beacon Journal. And today for our Healthy Actions um, podcast, we are joined by Dr. Samar Narus, who is president of the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. And he is also the chair of uh, for the Center for Pain Medicine at Western Reserve Hospital. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Narus. Thank you for having me. Uh, today, what we're going to talk about is um, you've actually been interviewed quite a bit um, for an, on uh, from national media um, in your role as president of the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine um, from some new cannabis or marijuana guidelines that um, the society recently released um, about use of um, marijuana use uh, going into surgery. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the new guidelines are that were recently released? Yes, this was a, like a consensus report from an expert panel that we created, diverse panel from uh, different anesthesiology backgrounds, pain physicians, obstetric anesthesiologists, uh, neurologists, psychiatrists, and also patient advocates was part of the uh, group. And we thought that it's time to give directions to anesthesiologists and surgeons about how to handle the patient that they show up for the procedure and they are utilizing uh, cannabis, whether it's medicinal or marijuana or recreational. So the issue is recently with the uh, um, changing in the regulations and the landscape of uh, utilization of cannabis, we see more and more patients are using cannabis, especially for uh, recreational. And also most of the states now, they are allow some form of legalization of uh, cannabis in general. So there is increased number of patients who are utilizing cannabis presenting for surgery. Also, we noticed that over the past few years, the potency of the THC in the available uh, cannabis in the market is much higher than what we used to have uh, a decade ago. And we do not fully understand all the potential interactions with the THC in regards to the anesthetic and the other medication. So this raised another red flag that uh, there might be serious interactions. Also, we got lots of observations from practicing physicians. There are now reports. All of them are observa observation reports that there is interactions during anesthesia, some patients, and they don't know which ones that they're utilizing cannabis. They have a uh, different outcome in the recovery room, uh, more pain, more uh, uh, violence, more vomiting. So all those factors uh, made us assemble this task force and create such guidelines to act like a roadmap to guide practicing anesthesiologists and surgeons how to handle the situation. Okay, and how, how are these guidelines intended to be used or how soon might anesthesiologists begin using these guidelines? Actually, my understanding that some institution already they have their local, some form of local guidelines uh, to the best of their knowledge. So this is the national, this is the first U.S. Uh, guidelines about the topic of uh, perioperative management of cannabis. So uh, I was hoping 
that it will be implemented uh, as soon as it was released. We already uh, get lots of, uh, we had almost 500 articles written about these guidelines already in the past week, which is the first week of its release online. So I'd expect widespread adoption of the guidelines. This is the I, feedback that we got. Sure, and I will point out that the American Society of Anesthesiologists, um, which I'm assuming is a is another um, pure industry group, uh, reviewed the guidelines and is in agreement with the recommendation. Yes, uh, and this is the large anesthesia uh, practicing group in the country, of course. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, your your involvement, you know, your local here in, in Cuyahoga Falls. Um, and obviously, I know that you're president of the group. Uh, you know, how did you get involved in, in looking at these guidelines and how long did they take to, to develop? Yeah, these particular guidelines took almost two years to develop from the assembling of the committee or the task force. Uh, we had extensive research of the literature, the available literature, and we have to admit that uh, most of the available literature are basic science or animal science. Uh, the clinical data, unfortunately, the majority of it is observation data, um, uh, like a co patient cohort. There is lack of rigorous randomized controlled trials for obvious reasons, because of the uh, still federally, it's illicit drug, it's a schedule one drug. But with the uh, more acceptable uh, applications of cannabis, I would expect that there more we will see more research in the next few years for sure. And the guidelines is meant to be a dynamic guidelines. The more data we have, we might update it as uh, as appropriate. So we assembled this task force about two years ago. Uh, I got involved because other than I'm the president of the uh, uh, American Society of Regional Decision Pain Medicine. I gained interest in the subject over the past few years. Actually, from Ohio here, a few years ago, they announced that they will allow medicinal cannabis. At that time, there was zero education for practicing physician in the state of Ohio and actually in all over the states. So I started to uh, gain interest uh, six, five, six years ago. And um, again, you have to go read the pharmacology, the uh, uh, physiology of the molecules, and actually it ended by two years ago, I released the first textbook on cannabis, cannabinoid, and pain. Uh, I will tell you that the majority of the practicing physicians in this country, they do not know much about cannabis. The, the, um, the legalization of cannabis really outpaced the science that we know about it. Only recently, and only recently, and again, few medical schools just added the pharmacology of the endocannabinoid system into the medical curriculum, but the practicing physician, they don't know. So we took advantage of this, and the first part of the guidelines, actually, is education. There are some tables, there are some summary of the pharmacology of the molecules, discussion of the endocannabinoids. Endo means endogenous, which means that the body sensitize and create some molecule that's very similar to what we get from smoking uh, exogenous. So exogenous are outside. Endogenous, which is the endocannabinoid system, this is part of our body. And actually they work on established receptors now that we know of. We call it receptor one and receptor two. The cannabis receptor one actually is the most abundant receptor in the human body. So it has lots of implications, lots of physiological interactions, and definitely one of the most critical period is anesthetizing the patient under general anesthesia and going through surgery. So we would expect some 
uh, physiological interactions. Some of them that become obvious to us now, and some maybe learn about it later. So what we calling off is to increase awareness about there might be problems. We need to plan ahead and we need to be prepared. So we'll have, we'll have to manage uh, any unexpected uh, issues in the recovery room. But I need to say that the many patients who are using cannabis are using it safely. And many patients will go and will have a very smooth surgery. I'm not saying that every patient will have a bad outcome. Because I hear from patients that, oh, I smoked cannabis, I talked to them, uh, and I didn't tell my surgeon, and they didn't have a problem. Yes, this is number one. But again, many patients will have this experience. However, we identified three subset of patients that they might not have the best outcome from anesthesia and surgery. And as you might know by now that the first group are the group that they showed up uh, at the time of surgery while they're acutely intoxicated. If you just smoked cannabis in a big dose, especially with the high potency of the THC that's available now, you might change the, the uh, you went to another dispensary or you got a different one, you don't know what it contains. In this situation, you might present to the hospital while you have some delusions, some paranoid, or even full in acute intoxication. In this case, really, you cannot make up your mind, cannot obtain a good informed consent, so we recommend postponing the surgery until the patient can be re-evaluated. So this is one type or one group of patients that we identified that they might have issues. The second group are the patients who had cannabis use disorder, which means that they are heavy users, not the casual user every now and then, heavy daily users, heavy daily smokers of cannabis. Those patients develop tolerance to cannabis from chronic use. So, and we know now from lots of basic science literature that if you develop tolerance to cannabis, you develop more pain because the endogenous, the natural cannabinoid in your body does not work well on the cannabis receptors to control pain. So we found that those subset of patients, they have more pain in the recovery room. So it, they are, even for minor procedure, I mean, the pain outmatches the procedure. This is a, a phenomenon that most of the anesthesiologists noticed already and observe it, and they are reaching out to learn about it. Yes. But again, this is not for every user. It's mainly for heavy daily users. They develop tolerance to the cannabinoids or the cannabis. And actually, there is something we call cross tolerance, which means if you develop tolerance to cannabinoids, more than likely you develop tolerance to opioids. So even if they got opioid to control the pain in the recovery room, it's not really well controlled. So we recommend using what we call multimodal approach, different medication, not just opioid, different medications, or even nerve blocks or regional anesthesia, if it's feasible to try to block the signals of the nerves. The third and last group that we identified are smokers, acute smokers. There is a good clinical data supporting that in the first two hours after acutely smoking a joint, you will have a high incidence of increased heart rate, arrhythmias and high blood pressure. And those are known risk factors to develop heart attack. So again, during the surgery, with the stress of the surgery, 
there is already a risk for you. So we thought that to avoid any potential risk of increased myocardial infarction after the surgery, we recommend postponing surgery for at least two hours if the patient just smoked marijuana to help controlling the heart rate and blood pressure and avoid myocardial infarction in the recovery room. So I know I talked a lot, but I think those are the three subgroups that we identified that they might present with issues. The first group, the acutely intoxicated, we had a consensus, strong consensus. So we graded as grade A, which means we should do this. The postponing uh, the surgery for two hours after smoking cannabis because of lack of rigorous randomized control trials, we reached only grade C, which means we suggest this, but there is a room for case-to-case -case evaluation. It depends on the context, but this is the what we suggest based on the available literature. Is the, um, you know, the question when the anesthesiologist is talking to the person about their cannabis use, is it on the honor system or are you also doing any type of drug testing to see whether or not it's in the system um, before surgery? This is a very good question. We recommend actually screening by uh, uh, questioning and we recommend direct questions because how most of the surveys now in the uh, uh, perioperative clinic is, are you using illicit substance? And most of the patients, especially in the states that they are allow uh, recreation cannabis, they, will, they won't consider it illicit substance anymore. So you, they won't disclose it. On the other hand, there are the other states, patients might not be willing to disclose it because they don't want to get in trouble. So we recommend direct questions, and this is very confidential and in, in a very supporting encouragement environment. We tell the patient this is for your best interest because we will adjust our plan accordingly. So I, I was hoping and I think most of the patient will be willing to disclose it. Uh, on the other hand, we did not find enough evidence to recommend universal urine screening of the patients. Uh, this is we did not uh, have any supportive evidence for this. So actually we graded I, which is we are not sure yet. Later on, maybe this will change. But for now, we recommend by interviewing the patients uh, clinical judgment is to ask the patient and not just are you using cannabis or not, because we won't identify those potential patients that might have issues. We ask when was the last time you used it? Are you smoking it or using topical or edibles? How frequent? So we can tell is he heavy smoker, heavy or daily or just sporadic? Uh, so, and what type? Is it recreational or medicinal? Because recreation, definitely our obligation as physicians is to educate the patient to not try not to do this in general. So definitely before surgery, you should uh, consider stopping it. But medicinal, the patients are taking those uh, uh, medicinal cannabinoids for good reason. So we recommend checking with your uh, um, physician that uh, monitor you and see how and when you can stop them and any replacement or not. So we do not make any specific recommendation about the medicinal one because this is part of your treatment plan with your treating physician. But the recreational one, this is where we should encourage the patient and educate the patient about the potential problems. And we tell them that smoking for recent smoking before surgery will lead to postponing the surgery. So. I think raising awareness and education that there is potential of 
bad or adverse outcome in the recovery room will encourage the patient to follow uh, the treating physician recommendations. But just to be clear, you're saying, though, that uh, while I understand there's a difference between medicinal and recreational um, use, your guidelines are for either, right? That, that you, you, the guideline is that you don't want, um, you don't want a, a, um, a patient to be uh, high from either medicinal or recreational use going into yes. a surgery. Okay. The issue with medicinal, usually it's a small dose and it's controlled and monitored. Okay. So you know the concentration of the TCC and you can look at the records and you know exactly what the patient taking. So usually we don't see much problem with those patients if they are really following the recommendations. Uh, because in general, even with medicinal cannabis, we do not recommend smoking or vaping. I mean, it's hard for a practicing physician to a patient go smoke. So we recommend edibles. Edibles take time to get in. So uh, the issue about smoking and we delay the surgery for two hours of smoking, it might not be uh, relevant in this population. But still, there are some patients who are smoking cannabis for medicinal purposes. Still, the guidelines, as you said, apply to them and we have to consider postponing surgery for a couple of hours. Elective, we are talking about elective surgeries for sure. Right, right. Um, and talk to me a little bit about also, uh, you and I were discussing before we started that anesthesiologists will often see a patient not only on the day of surgery, but uh, a few days before. So there is an opportunity to kind of do this screening um, a few days before. Absolutely. Yes. In most of the institution now, there is perioperative clinic, which means that the patient is evaluated even a few days prior to the surgery. And it depends on the surgery. If it's a, a minor surgery, especially if it's in and out surgery, outpatient surgery, healthy young patient, uh, those patients are usually seen uh, in the day of surgery. And those are the patients that these guidelines will, uh, uh, will be very valuable for the practicing physician because you didn't have, you didn't establish any care with the patient, you don't know much. But for the majority of the other surgeries, they were evaluated a few days because most of the time you need to order maybe EKG, you need to uh, contact the cardiologist, make sure that the patient heart will tolerate the stress of surgery if it's a big surgery. So yes, there is a, an outpatient clinic, perioperative clinic evaluating the patient after the surgery, before the surgery. And actually in some patient who you would expect problems, sometimes they follow with this clinic even after the surgery, if they still require uh, medi pain medication for few weeks after the surgery, they might follow back with this clinic. But this is the opportunity, this outpatient clinic, this is where the opportunity to sit down with the patient, educate the patient, and discuss with them the various pros and cons of using the cannabis. And are these guidelines for days leading up to the surgery at all, or can there be any levels of marijuana use in a patient, um, you know, when they go into surgery, or is the concern more that there's a certain higher level um, that would require, you know, that would um, suggest that you postpone that surgery? No, for now, we, we, we don't know the levels, honestly, and uh, uh, most of the urine tests and even the blood available tests are not really accurate, and they don't tell us much, because the... Metabolites of the cannabis or cannabinoid are long acting and they can show in the urine for weeks. So you can do a urine screen for a patient, it showed some metabolites, but the patient smoked literally like three weeks. So it's not reliable, at least the current testing. So we recommend uh, screening by asking the patient and the clinical exam, the clinical judgment uh, of the patient. 
Uh, so there's not necessarily a guideline of like you'd like them to stop three days before or anything like that. That's not part of these guidelines. Okay. No, we, we did not make guidelines about weaning before or stopping a long time because, again, the clinical uh, evidence is just starting to accumulate in the literature over the past few years. I'm sure this might change a few years later and we will update the guidelines. But for now, when we do guidelines, uh, it's a consensus based on the current available literature. Uh, other than that will be opinion. So for now, all what we know that if the patient is acutely intoxicated, you cannot, you should not proceed with elective surgery. Patient acutely smoked cannabis, you need to tell the patient that they might have high, uh, uh, higher risk for tachycardia, which increase heart rate or even myocardial infarction. That's why we recommend delaying the surgery two hours. If the patient is daily chronic use of high dose of cannabis, then we have to tell the patient and put a plan ahead about how we're going to manage the pain in the recovery room and other issues in the recovery room. And we can talk about why they are experiencing more pain in the recovery room. Okay, um, I think you already touched on this then, if, if there are, you know, what are some complications that could happen uh, during or after surgery? I think you already covered that. Um, and that uh, any extra precautions that might be taken, I think you might've also covered that as well, unless there's anything else you'd like to add. No, for, I mean, sometimes if the patient's really uh, um, chronic uh, smoking cannabis, they might have uh, COPD or other respiratory issues. So this, we have to be evalu evaluating this also, especially if the patient will go under general anesthesia and the plan is to put a breathing tube in the mouth. So this is uh, also another concern. Uh, there is also interactions between THC and anesthetic drugs. And most of the practicing anesthesiologists uh, will admit on this. They noticed this already and they didn't know uh, why. They didn't have explanation that the heavy users, they require more propofol to fall asleep. Propofol is this milky uh, white drug that uh, we use it for general anesthesia. They require more. Actually, I will share with you a small story here, a short story that in the last conference that we talked about it, uh, two practicing physicians, one of them said, I even doubted that I'm giving propofol or not, but I know it's white and it's propofol. He gave the patient a full dose and he didn't even face the patient. So he doubted that the IV catheter may be not in place. So he had to put another IV catheter and even the patient required another dose and have 50% more. And few of the uh, physicians in the room shared the same experience, which again is the same. If you develop tolerance to one uh, uh, cannabinoid, which works on some or similar receptors, you might develop, we call it cross-tolerance or cross-talk. There are cross-talk between those receptors and another or other analgesic receptor that other medications are uh, working on. Also, there's some interactions between THC and other blood thinners. Also, they might have higher risk of bleeding, although rare, it's more a uh, few case reports that were reported of high bleeding uh, with THC. There might be also risk of low blood pressure, dropping the blood pressure in the recovery room and more pain. And those situations, if the pain is really high, uh, we have to consider cannabis withdrawal symptoms. And again, usually those are the heavy users, but also especially if they stopped uh, using cannabis before surgery, and the surgery took a few hours. So by the time they hit the recovery room, maybe they already missed a few doses of the cannabis. 
those those they will develop cannabis withdrawal symptoms which is usual the first presentation is pain that's why this pain is difficult to treat sometimes vomiting uh, and low blood pressure and we call it sometimes uh, this expression paradoxical effect which means the opposite so thc in a small dose it's analgesic which means treats pain in high dose actually it causes pain the same with nausea and vomiting. In small doses, it's a treatment for nausea and vomiting. Actually, there is a synthetic THC that's pharmaceutically available and FDA approved for the management of severe nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy in cancer patients. However, on high dose of THC, which I, I told you earlier that currently in the market, they are really, really high potent THC. It can cause more nausea. So we call it paradoxical effects. Because the more you take higher doses, the more you saturate your receptors. So the body does not make any more receptors. We call it down regulations. We have on receptors, cannabinoid receptors. The body make them on demand. You need more, I will give you our sensitized mon receptors. So we call it on demand. So if you have high dose of THC, you occupy your receptors. The, the, the brain signals you don't need any more receptors. So again, the endogenous or the naturally occurring cannabinoids in your body does not have receptors to work on. So we call that you, you um, have abnormal endocannabinoid tone now. So you have more pain with hyperalgesia, sometimes nausea and vomiting in the recovery room. But I want to say that the physician should be aware of the potential of withdrawal symptoms. So what to do about those withdrawal symptoms? This is a tough situation, especially in USA. Uh, in our group, we have diverse group. We have international representations. So actually what I'm going to say, it's a very common practice in Canada and Europe. If, if you believe that the patient was drawing because the pain is not well controlled, uh, there is a lack of sleep in the recovery room, agitation, the patient is, uh, is uh, rather violent or restless, you should be uh, considering withdrawal symptoms. We treat the pain as much as possible. Sometimes we cannot. And we know if you are withdrawing from something, we need to give you this substance. Like you are withdrawing from opioid, we need to give you opioids under supervision while monitoring the patient. We cannot give THC in the recovery room because it is federally not approved yet. Uh, so what we recommend based on relatively decent evidence uh, from the Canadian experience and international experience, we give an exogenous THC. The medicine that I told you about that there is a synthetic THC that's pharmaceutical available in most of the pharmacies in any hospital, which is the dronabinol medicine, which is FDA approved for intractable nausea and vomiting related to chemotherapy. So we recommend using this in the recovery room in selected situations. However, we have to disclose that it's uh, off-label use because it's not FDA-approved use. But our guidelines, we know that it will be adopted uh, internationally. So this is a, a well-known practice in Canada and Europe to treat cannabis withdrawal symptoms with what's available in the hospital, what's pharmaceutically available, which we know exactly the dose, and we are comfortable using it because it's FDA-cleared. Um, lastly, can you explain um, what hyperemesis is? Yeah, this is more vomiting. So again, in small doses, it's a treatment of nausea and vomiting. But 
uh, in high doses, especially uh, quickly, you uh, you get more vomiting. So we call it hyperemesis. And this is, in, especially in the states that they have recreational uh, cannabis for a while, it's well known now in the in the ER. So emergency room physician they saw this patient a lot. And this is a good question to tell you why we want to know smoking versus edibles. This hyperemesis usually happens actually with edibles, not smoking, for a change. Because smoking, you will get the effect in, within a minute. You get the buzz within a minute. And so if patients who are used to smoke and he knows what he's getting and then switch it to uh, edibles for whatever reason, whether recreational, someone told him it's safer, or medicinal, another physician said, I don't like my patient to smoke, let's go to edibles. We need to educate them because the edibles, they take few hours to kick in. So what happened are those, usually they are young patients. They, they take a, a small dose, a bite that are recommended. They don't feel it. So they feel that, oh, this is a smaller dose for them. So they keep eat and eat and eat and they don't feel the buzz. So they feel that, okay, we're safe. Let's eat more. And then in five years, everything will kick in. Five hours. Five hours. <laughs> <laughs> everything will kick in. And then they go to the ER with the bad outcome, which is usually emesis. And the young ones, actually, they will get to the ER because of acute psychosis. That's why I think we are obligated to educate the physician and the community, the patient also about the safe use, especially there is a role of cannabis in, in, in medicine in general. We are not sure uh, who are the patient that will re respond really well, but there is a decent evidence that medicine marijuana is here to stay. It's our role to educate the uh, physicians and the patient about the safe use of it. This is what we can do now until it's fully uh, regulated and legalized. You know, is there, when you were talking before about the THC use uh, for withdrawal, um, for patients who do have approval for medicinal marijuana, um, you know, is there, are there any guidelines for allowing them to use it during recovery while they're in the hospital? It's a very tough question that I do not have answer to it because it's, you have to discuss it with your local institution because some uh, hospital will fear they will get in trouble with the CMS. They won't pay them for Medicare patients because, again, federates not appropriate. So this is one of the questions that if you interview the patient well ahead of the surgery and you know that the patient's heavy user, you know that you're going to have withdrawal, then you might reach out to the SS committee in the hospital. And my approach in this situation it will be uh, more cleaner to approve using dronabinol, which is pharmaceutical available, than telling the patient to use something that you are not sure about. Because even I have to make this common, even medicinal marijuana, even if you get it from a legitimate dispensary, there is few studies now show that whatever on the label does not really match what the patients get. It can be off by 20% to 40% because they lack the rigorous FDA regulatory process. It's uh, they use the third party lab to confirm, but there is a big variability. So it's hard for any practicing physician to tell the patient, oh, use what you have in your purse in the recovery room. I, I don't see this happening at all. I see it's more appropriate to use an off-label uh, FDA cleared synthetic THC that the, it's available in the pharmacist and you know how to use it, you know how to titrate it. Dr. Nuris, thank you very much for taking the time today to explain all of this. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... Uh 
human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.